Acts chapter 19. May I lift up the Lord Jesus Christ tonight from Acts 19. We have Presbyterians in this assembly that were once Presbyterians that were rebaptized in order to become Christians and Baptists. We have Lutherans who were rebaptized to become Christians and disciples of Christ and Baptists. We have Catholics who were rebaptized to become disciples of Christ, Christians and Baptists. And we only call ourselves Baptists to help others understand what we are. We're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has a specified form of baptism, and so that's very important to us. We have those here in our midst. We have a Bible basis for rebaptizing, and it's Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And so we want to look at that this evening, and with the rest of the chapter, I have spent a great deal of time, and the Lord has been very merciful on these seven verses. I have an extensive outline that I can send you on just these seven verses that I'm not going to go into all of the points tonight, but he's been, the Lord's been very abundant in making it crystal clear and plain, and I hope in a few minutes I can do so for you. Before we get to Acts 19, it's been two weeks since we were in the book of Acts, let's go back to chapter 18 and remember that in verse 23, the Apostle Paul ended his second evangelistic trip and began his third. In Acts 18.23, it says, And after he had spent some time there, that's at his home church of Antioch in Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, he departed. He left his home church again and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And that's what we would call the middle portion of the nation of Turkey today. And then we read in verses 24 through 28, sometime after that, a mighty man of God came to Ephesus. His name was Apollos. But he only knew the baptism of John. Many, many years earlier, he'd been baptized by John. That's all he knew. And he just kept perpetuating John's baptism under repentance with a knowledge that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Messiah of the Old Testament, because it tells us he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And that way of the Lord there is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Aquila and Priscilla took him home and explained to him the way of God more perfectly, and then they sent him from Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, which is southern Turkey, into Greece, to the city of Corinth, which was in Achaia. Now Paul had been one Sabbath day in Ephesus. And then he left that place, and he left Aquila and Priscilla there, and Apollos came in and did some evangelizing for a dead John the Baptist. And then Paul arrives in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. They were twelve. The Lord likes to use language like that sometimes. There were twelve men, and they were certain disciples. There's so much I want to say to you. I'm like a wine bottle wanting to burst, and I've only got a few minutes because we've got to get through the whole chapter in a, de- in a reasonable amount of time. This is a rebaptism. These people were baptized for the second time, and they were sincere brothers. Are they called disciples? Yep. Were they believers? Yep. How do we know they were believers? Because Paul said, 
Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? believed? They were believers. Were they sincere? Yes. He didn't question their sincerity. Did they have a good conscience about their baptism? Yes. Was it by immersion? Yes. yes. Did they believe on Jesus Christ? Yes. What was wrong with their baptism? Their baptism was not in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is the great difference that took place on the day of Pentecost. Yep. No one prior to the day of Pentecost was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized unto repentance. They repented and were baptized without that formula that Jesus Christ gave after he rose from the dead and gathered his disciples around and ascended into heaven when he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Prior to that time, no one was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That was brand new. So that on the day of Pentecost... Well, you say, well, what happened between when Jesus said that and the day of Pentecost? There were 10 days in there. Don't you know what the disciples were doing from Acts 1 and 2? They were praying in the upper room. They were waiting for Jesus Christ to baptize them with the Holy Ghost because he said, not many days hence, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And on the day of Pentecost, with all these Jews speaking in foreign languages, the men of, in Jerusalem said, what's going on here? Peter explains... Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, he is seated at God's right hand, and he is dispensing the promised Holy Spirit from God upon the church. And they listened to all of this, and Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, Lord and Christ. Amen. And with that word of conclusion, they said, What shall we do? Amen. And Peter said, Repent. And be baptized under repentance? No. Nope. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yep. It was on the day of Pentecost when men were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ first. Right. Now, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He was baptized in a baptism under repentance. Did Jesus need to repent of anything? This is a, a little short rabbit. No. Why did Jesus undergo that baptism? He tells us in Matthew 3.15, to fulfill all righteousness. The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, who baptized them? John. What did you have to be? To, what did you have to have in your resume to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Go to Acts chapter 1 and find out that you had to start with John's baptism. You can read it in Acts chapter 1. They were baptized unto repentance, and John kept saying, There's coming one after me that's mightier than me. And he, I just baptized you with water under repentance, but the one coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. The ministry of John the Baptist was preparatory. It was vague. It was dark. John knew very little. Listen, brethren, when John was in prison, he had to send his disciples to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? John baptized a baptism of repentance. It was God's ordained baptism for that period of time up to the day of Pentecost. Remember, this is key, the time of Reformation from Jesus beginning his ministry until the destruction of Jerusalem from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. was the time of Reformation. It was a transitory time a time of transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so we have a number of unusual things going on in that 40-year time period. We have sign gifts like the world has never seen before or since. We have a, a council at Jerusalem telling Gentiles not to eat meat with blood in it because that'd be offensive to Jews. And as soon as the Jews were done away with in 70 A.D., it didn't matter. That's why some of you get rare and medium rare steaks and no one says anything. Even though when you put your fork and knife in it, it runs all over the plate. Amen. Because that Acts chapter 15 doesn't apply to us. That was a temporary ruling just to keep the Jews happy. We already studied that in Acts 15. It's a time of transition. 
Did anyone, was John the Baptist's baptism a Christian baptism? Was it a, amen it was. Was it a proper baptism? Jesus said it fulfilled all righteousness. Did John baptize Jesus in the name of the Lord Jesus? No. John baptized Jesus in the baptism under repentance. Just like he did the apostles. They did not have to be rebaptized because John was an authorized baptizer. He was a proper administrator. Who sent him to baptize? God. John 1 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John 1, that's pretty plain, isn't it? So we have a proper administrator. Did he do it beside Jordan or in Jordan? He did it in Jordan. Did he ever baptize in a place called Anan? In John 3.23, why did he go there to baptize? Because there was much water there, so he baptized by immersion. Did he baptize people old enough to repent? Yes. Did he demand repentance? What did he do to the Pharisees when they came to be baptized? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance, and I'll baptize you. Otherwise, what are you here for? You serpents. Jesus Christ is coming soon. He's going to burn you up and throw you into his furnace. The axe is now laid to the root of the trees. He was a bold evangelist. Those men did not have to be rebaptized because they were baptized by an authorized man, John the Baptist. Could, did John perpetuate apostles and ministers descending from them for another stream of ministers to compete with the apostles of Jesus Christ? No. John's ministry died with John. And John's ministry didn't overlap the Lord Jesus Christ very much. Because Jesus' apostles baptized many more than John did. And they baptized with the very same baptism. A baptism of repentance. Jesus Christ's preaching was the very same as John's. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very same message that John had. Look at Matthew 16. No one was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus prior to Jesus of Nazareth being announced and proven by the gifts, by his resurrection and the gifts of the Holy Ghost to be Lord and Christ. They were simply baptized to repentance. Do you repent of your sins before God? And they were baptized. And I'm telling you, there's one coming after me that you better believe on. Look at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. This is a verse we're very familiar with. I say it, well, let's get verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want you to see the context here. We are having a serious discussion of what God has revealed to Peter, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, is that how we've all been baptized? Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, were these disciples baptizing men in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Would that be telling them that Jesus was the Christ? Yes. Were they to do that? No. They were not to do that because Jesus was not yet to be declared. He was going to be declared with power, brethren. Power. He wasn't going to have fishermen going around who couldn't even listen for the three years he was with them and get things straight. He was going to wait until he poured the Holy Ghost on them when they would have complete understanding and great power. And they would be able to prove by their miracles that Jesus was indeed the Lord Christ. The first baptism that ever took place in the name of the Lord Jesus was on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. The world had never heard those words before. They had never heard, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And when they were baptized, the gifts of the Holy Ghost were on the church at Jerusalem in power. Do you know what Philip did, a deacon? He went down to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and performed miracles. So that the sorcerer in that city, Simon the sorcerer, wanted to buy the gifts that resulted from him and the apostles. In Acts chapter 19, 
What do we have here? We have a man that came into Ephesus named Apollos. He knew the baptism of John. He'd been baptized by John. How do we know that? Because it says he knew only the baptism of John. His religious experience extended only to what John did and taught. Although he knew that there had been a fulfillment of that man, because John the Baptist did say, Behold the Lamb of God. But he just got confused later in life when he was in prison. Apollos knew that because it says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was not rebaptized. It doesn't say that Aquila and Priscilla took him home and took him to a neighbor's swimming pool and rebaptized him. It says they just explained to him the way of God more perfectly, which way was your baptism is invalid. The way that you've been baptizing is invalid because you're using the wrong formula. It's been changed. And you don't know anything about the Holy Ghost. Look, we want to tell you what happened at Pentecost. And so then John was sent on to the church at Corinth because he had a fuller understanding from Aquila and Priscilla. He was not rebaptized. We trust the silence of Scripture that if it wanted us to know that Apollos was rebaptized, it would tell us. And there's no reason for him to be baptized any more than Peter and John because they all had the same administrator, John the Baptist. But now while he was at Ephesus, he convinced some Jews to be disciples. That's what we presume from context. It doesn't really matter because it doesn't affect the argument one whit whether Apollos baptized them or someone else. All we know is that they were baptized after the day of Pentecost into an obsolete baptism that no longer was in force. When the, who did Paul have in the city of Ephesus? Two friends, Aquila and Priscilla. When he got there, he wasn't just walking down the street one day and bumped into 12 guys that looked like disciples. If Luke told us every detail, do you know how long the book of Luke would be? The, the, the Luke, Luke expects us to be able to read the context and let it flow. Apollos was in the city of Ephesus. He was converted by Aquila and Priscilla in the end of chapter 18. And we immediately, first verse, Paul arrives in Ephesus, finds some disciples, and he sees that they have no gifts of the Holy Ghost. This isn't the presence of the Holy Ghost. These are the gifts, because that's what they're going to get in verse 6. Because in these days, you needed those gifts, or you were, you were dry. You were left out in no man's land. What were you going to know about God's will for a group of 12 men on what to do to please the Lord? On what Christ had done for... What would they know? They needed the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Notice the gifts they got. They got tongues, which tongues were not vain babblings, but tongues were expressing things in other languages. And tongues weren't used in an assembly unless there was an interpreter so that they would make sense and they got the gift of prophecy. Those were necessary revelatory gifts so that they could teach and learn. Paul saw that they didn't have those. That they were just wandering around having a little tiny, tiny bit of knowledge about some Messiah coming. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we believe. And we've been baptized under repentance. Paul has two questions. He's an apostle, remember. He does not have to play around and wonder what's wrong with these men. He goes right after the fact that they're missing the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, Holy Ghost? We don't know. Is there supposed to be some outpouring of the Holy Ghost? We don't know about any outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We haven't even heard of the Holy Ghost. And Paul wasn't wondering Paul had the Holy Spirit. What Paul said to them next, Unto what then were ye baptized? And that is the key to the whole thing. His question and their answer. Right. He immediately sees the problem. He, he addresses the Holy Ghost issue. Then he addresses the baptism issue. And they said, Unto John's baptism. Notice, did they say they were baptized by John? Nope. No, they were baptized unto John's baptism. Right. Were they baptized unto Christ? No, they were baptized under John's baptism. And so then Paul begins to explain what John baptized and how John's baptism was only short-term until Christ would come. John's ministry was very unique. He burst on the scene at the Jordan River and baptized thousands. 
I mean, the Pharisees had to go out and check into him. He was baptizing so many. There were soldiers at his baptism. There were publicans at his baptism. There were harlots at his baptism. And there was Jesus and the apostles and their women at his baptism. And he baptized them all. His was a great baptism. But it only lasted a short while. Because then Jesus Christ came and his apostles began to baptize more. John chapter 4 tells us, that the Pharisees understood that the numbers had now swung to Jesus and his apostles, though Jesus Christ never baptized a single one, just his apostles. Do you know what his ministry was? I must, in, I must decrease, and he must increase. As soon as Jesus Christ came on the scene, he began to fade out of the picture, and he ended up in prison very quickly. I must decrease, he must increase. And so Jesus Christ takes over in this short three-and-a-half-year time period, dies his death on the cross, his orders to his disciples are not to announce that he is the Christ. Now, there, were, there was a few isolated cases, like the woman of Samaria. And there was a, his disciples sometimes knew, sometimes didn't. That's why Jesus had to say to Peter, Flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That's how rare it was to recognize that Jesus was the Christ. Sometimes children would throw palm branches in the way and would cry out that he was the Hosanna in the highest, that the son of David was there. But that was exceptional. I just showed you what he taught. He didn't want them to tell that he was the Christ. But on the day of Pentecost, he is now sitting at the pinnacle of power of the universe in the kingdom of God. And he's pouring out the Holy Ghost that God's given him, and baptism is done very differently. Now it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more teaching. There's one coming after me that's mightier than I. The the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose because that one was there. And Peter announced him with power. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God's made that Jesus whom you've crucified, Lord and Christ. The Apostle Paul wisely asked two questions. Where do you stand in the Holy Ghost? They showed their ignorance of Pentecost he said, unto what then were you baptized? Someone had baptized them with, an, with a baptism that died when John died, that di- as far as John doing it, that died at Pentecost as far as the apostles of Christ doing it. The baptism of repentance by itself was over because that formula, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that authority that's in Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the Godhead in him, that descriptive formula and identifying Words used at baptism had never been used before. Jesus said those just before he ascended back into heaven. That was brand new. They went to the upper room and they prayed, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Then they did exactly that. Peter baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul explains to these 12 disciples at Ephesus, verse 4, Then said Paul, John, verily, that means truly, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance. John's baptism was Christian, it was right, it was good, it was proper. John did. You men haven't been baptized by John. That's not said here, but he's, he's describing John's baptism. John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. Now Paul's going to explain what that was. These are not... This is not John's explanation. This is Paul's explanation that John was pointing out Christ. That is, on Christ. Paul's explaining, Paul's fulfilling John the Baptist's baptism. There were some times, John chapter 1, where John pointed out Jesus Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. But his ministry was one that you're going to believe, you should believe on one that's coming after me. I am no one. I am just sent to announce the kingdom of heaven that it's at hand and there is one among you. He didn't follow Jesus around. He was off by himself saying there's one among you that is mightier than I, much more important than I am, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, which came 40 years later. He baptized with both. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul explains to these 12 disciples that John's baptism was simply pointing to Jesus Christ and they had been baptized 
back to the preparatory baptism instead of the fulfilling baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't tell us that they, were, they believed in the name of the Lord Jesus because they were already believers. All it tells us is they had an invalid baptism, and that baptism was invalid because it was done under John's baptism, which avoided and did not have the identifying formula of the Lord Jesus Christ attached to it, which from the day of Pentecost forward is the only way that men were baptized. And anywhere you go in the book of Acts, remember when Philip went down to Samaria? When Philip went down to Samaria, he baptized a whole lot of people in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the only way baptism's done since Pentecost. But they didn't get the power of the Holy Ghost because they needed apostolic authority there. Philip was a proper administrator for baptism, but God did some things differently in this transition of the book of Acts. In order to magnify the apostles everywhere, they carried the gifts of the Holy Ghost. So Peter and John were sent down from Jerusalem to Samaria, and when they got there, they laid their hands on those people that were already baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they received the Holy Ghost. But that was to constantly lift up the apostles. The apostles are the foundation of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 5, if you remember Acts chapter 5, verse 13, no man dared join himself to them, but all the people magnified them. The Lord Jesus Christ, 12 men, were lifted up on high with the power that the Lord gave them. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about 12. Now we've got some pronouns in verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, who is the them? The 12. Because all we've got in verse 5 is a pronoun they, twice. Who's the they in verse 5? Is it the 12? That's what's under consideration all the way from verse 1 to verse 7. It's the 12. Never are those that heard John being treated as a subject of this discourse or this little narrative. Here's what, brethren, here's what's happened. Beginning with John the Baptist and the Apostles, there have been small little bands of disciples of Jesus Christ just like ours for 2,000 years. They have met in schools and in homes and in hotel meeting rooms and beside river places and in caves and in catacombs. They have been called Elbigenses. They've been called Cathari. They've been called Waldensians, Patricians, Paulicans, Paulicians, Patrines, Waldensians, Lollards, Anabaptists, Catabaptists, Baptists, and all sorts of names for 2,000 years. Whenever anyone came to one of their assemblies and wanted to worship with them, they would examine his baptism. And when sprinkling came into vogue, which was not until late, they would require a rebaptism. When infants had been dipped, which existed for hundreds of years, and those adults then came to join one of these groups, they would be rebaptized. And this was their defense. Acts 19, 1 through 7, that a rebaptism needs to take place when a person was not baptized scripturally the first time. Therefore, they were called Anabaptists. Anabaptists means rebaptizers. Baptizing again. That was a term created by their enemies. They never liked that term. Let me tell you why they didn't like it. They didn't like it because they didn't believe they were baptizing again. Because they didn't believe what had happened the first time could be called a baptism in any way, shape, or form. These men were baptized. They were buried in water with a proper administrator. They just weren't buried the right way. They didn't have the right doctrine. They gave their lives for the doctrine of rebaptizing. I love the doctrine of baptism so much. I don't love it as much as the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm going to tell you something. It's closely connected to him. You can't be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ without being baptized his way. Because he's made his way so foolish to this world that hardly anyone wants to do it. Right, go home and look in your almanac right now. How many Christians are there in the world tonight? Population 6 billion on planet Earth. How many claim the name of Christ. 
that they're Christians. Two billion. How many of those? Baptized by immersion. That includes Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> Let's be really generous here. How many baptized by immersion? A hundred million. Five percent. Ninety-five percent. Ninety-five percent of the two billion deny the doctrine of immersion. They also deny that you need to be a believer in order to be baptized, and they do it to infants. We are in a small minority. Those great and proud and beautiful church buildings with their priesthood and their quasi-priests, as in the Presbyterian Church and Lutheran Church and Episcopal Church and Methodist Church, they despise our doctrine of baptism, and they hate rebaptizers. Do you know why they hate rebaptizers? Because when a person grows up and comes to their senses and is willing to go out into a river and be dunked underwater by another man and raised back up again, that is the strongest statement that can be made that that religious system from which I'm coming is foolish and heretical. And that that pretty service that they have in their temples called cathedrals, where they pour a little water in the form of a cross out of a little pitcher onto a forehead, is ridiculous, and it's not a baptism. They hate the doctrine of rebaptism, and they have fought it. And the number one enemy was John Kelvin himself, who worked this passage. This is the best that we know from history. He worked this passage until it did not teach a rebaptism. Baptists, oh, I wish I could share so much with you to know the heritage that you have by the grace of God. There are the Bible commentators on this passage. Most of the Bible commentators are baby sprinkling Church of England or Presbyterian authors. They don't believe there's a baptism, a rebaptism in here at all. I'm going to show you how they do it. And John Kelvin took a rebaptism out of this chapter. Now the Baptists were acute, were told, the Baptists, remember, fleeing for their lives in the woods and in caves to survive. They were told that the baptism of John was simply a Jewish initiation rite of proselytes. And so that any arguments used about John the Baptist didn't apply to Christian baptism. Well, now, Baptist brethren, to use to use Rome's poets, I wish you'd, if you to use Rome's poets. Do you remember Paul? When Paul was in Athens, what did how did Paul reason? Did he quote a lot of scripture? No, he didn't quote a lot of scripture. He didn't quote any scripture. When Paul was with those philosophers in Acts chapter seventeen, he quoted Greek poets to prove his point to these pagan minds, and he explained it in a broad, in a fuller sense than any of them believed because he was explaining the truth to them. And so our Baptist fathers sometimes, in their efforts to prove that John the Baptist's baptism was indeed a Christian and proper baptism, would quote John Kelvin and others from this passage, because if there's not a rebaptism here, then John's baptism must have been fine Christian baptism. Do you understand? Yep. So the passage has been just totally messed up. You say, how do we know that we have the truth? Well, there's a thing called inductive reasoning. And inductive reasoning is to take all the facts of a particular case, and the facts are many. All the facts. Matthew 16, 20 that I read to you. Acts 2, 38, and how Peter baptized for the first time on the day of Pentecost. All the facts. Put them all together. Is there a conclusion that we can draw from all the facts that satisfies them all and violates none? Yep. Absolutely. What happened here? There was a rebaptism because they hadn't been baptized in the Trinitarian formula of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were writing a paper for English, when you got down to verse 4, then said Paul, where would you put your quotation marks? Your open quotation marks. Right before the word John, wouldn't you? Then said Paul, Do you know where they put the closed quotation marks? Instead of at the end of verse 4, we put them at the end of verse 4. And verse 5 is Luke describing what Paul did. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those are Luke's words. 
John Calvin puts the closed quotation marks at the end of verse 5. So that Paul is explaining John the Baptist's baptism, and he says that when they were told that he... that oh, This is so, so bizarre. In verse 4, Paul is explaining when John the Baptist baptized with his baptism of repentance... He explained that there was one coming after him that was Jesus Christ, and they should believe on him. And the people that heard John believed that message and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John never baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But that's what they do to that passage. You may not appreciate what I've just told you. All I want to, I'll say, I'm going to leave it with this. Men gave their lives for what you've just heard tonight because we believe in rebaptism. We believe that there needs to be a proper administrator. That is a God-called man that preaches the gospel who does baptizing. We believe there needs to be a proper subject to baptism. There's five things for a right baptism. The right man doing the baptizing, then the right person getting baptized. And he has to be a believer. That's why we have Acts 8.37 in the King James Bibles. Because the Ethiopian eunuch said, What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That verse is missing from all other translations except the King James Bible. Then there's a proper mode, which is immersion, because baptism must be a picture, not of regeneration. Are you kidding me? Where in the world do they get a picture of regeneration? Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then there needs to be a proper doctrine. And what is the proper doctrine? Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior from sin by His death and resurrection. That's all you need to know. Then the fifth requirement is there's got to be a proper design of baptism. It cannot be for the remission of sins. Because that's not what the Lord Jesus Christ set it up for. It's an identification with Him and an answer of a good conscience. There's a lot more that could be said in Acts chapter 19. I know I didn't. it may not have been very clear to you. I hope that you'll read it and consider it. If you would like something much more extensive, it is certainly available. Let's, let's whip through the rest of this chapter, the Lord giving us grace to learn what we should from it. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Should I tire of telling you that the mightiest evangelist that ever walked this earth, the apostle to the Gentiles, when he went into a city, he went to the synagogue. I'll just say it again. Every time, every chapter we come to, and I'm doing this so that you will understand why we practice evangelism the way we do. We wait and look for opportunities of those that fear God that want to hear the truth. We do not care about the man on the street because he doesn't care about the truth. And that is not a hard-hearted attitude. He doesn't care about a God in heaven. That's why he's on the street. If he cared about a God in heaven, he'd be searching through the churches in Greenville County to find a place where the word of God is opened and preached. Paul went to the synagogue where there were Jews that believed there was one God that created the heavens and the earth and where there were Gentiles that joined with those Jews because they believed there was one God that created heaven and earth and to them he would dispute and persuade. Bible preaching is not an entertaining art form. I've taught you that for the last 15 months, but I must teach you that again. Amen. When you go and hear a pretty story with illustrations and you feel good, and it's a warm and fuzzy situation in that assembly. That isn't preaching. Preaching is disputing and persuading. Preaching is war. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. It is war. The warfare is between me, representing Jesus Christ, and your thoughts. I am supposed to bring every one of your thoughts into captivity to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Bible preaching. Amen. Be instant, in season, out of season. That's to be pressing and urgent. You're supposed to leave here with me having moved you somewhere, not me having made you feel comfortable where you are. Amen. This morning I woke up. I went in and turned on my computer. 
Early Sunday morning. Not too early because it says it's vain to rise up early. Every Sunday morning I do that. I want to pop out of bed so early because I'm thinking, i got to do more. And I remember that passage. But I went in there this morning and turned on my computer. And I have a subscription that there's a Baptist minister in this country who puts together information about what's going on in the churches around the world of all sorts and sends them to Baptist pastors. And I turned it on, and lo and behold, the first article that I got to read this morning for my edification was about a church in California, one of these new mega churches. That's what they're called, mega churches. You know, let's not settle for 200 members. Let's have 75,000 members. Mega churches. And his point was, from a sermon that he had preached to his people, we have got to alter the things we do in this church so that we make the unbelievers happy. That's what, that's what the news service was for this morning. That we should make the unbelievers comfortable in our service. Our music should be modified to make the unbelievers comfortable. The preaching should be modified. I am not exaggerating. The preaching should be modified to make the unbelievers comfortable. That is not a godly church, nor is that Bible preaching. Paul wanted to move men. Whenever he got a chance to preach to men, he wanted to move them. That's what persuading is, to move you to a new position. And he disputed with the position you hold. To dispute something is to contend by opposing arguments or assertions. It's to debate argumentatively. To persuade is to induce belief of something to lead one to think or believe. That's what Paul did. And that's what proper preaching is. It's taking the Word of God and persuading you, moving you to a new position, not to make you comfortable with where you are. God help us. Do you know where we'll go by default? To carnal Christianity at best. To having a Jezebel as our pastor teaching us to all commit fornication at our worst. Verse 9, But when divers were hardened, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. What is that way? That's God's way. That's our way. That way. He departed from them and separated the disciples. I mean, there's only a, a certain amount of time that you can compromise if you're going to have people objecting to the truth. For three months he preached in the synagogue and he had a mixed multitude. Some believed and some didn't. He used the building and he used the opportunity to preach there to address the believers. But as soon as he was getting too much opposition from those that didn't believe, he pulled the disciples out. He separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Every day, for two years, in the school of one Tyrannus, he preaches the gospel and disputes and persuades uh, regarding the kingdom of God. Now this Asia that's spoken of here is not what we call Asia. He was not working with Genghis Khan, or any of his ancestors or descendants. This is Turkey. In fact, the southwestern section of Turkey was called Asia Minor by the Romans. And everyone in that section of the world heard the gospel, knew about Jesus Christ, knew about the kingdom of God from the Apostle Paul. How did God get that done? When there wasn't means of mass communication, he didn't have a website. How did he get the word of God to everyone? And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. You know, I think all miracles are pretty special. But when the Holy Ghost tells me that God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul, let's read the next verse. So that, here's a special miracle. From his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. That is a special miracle. Paul didn't have to be there. You know, they do that sometimes on these charismatic television shows to raise money. But we don't read about Paul selling them. We read about them being taken from Paul. And when they came to a person that had a disease or an evil spirit, the disease or the evil spirit left because Jesus Christ was blessing the ministry of Paul that much. And I mentioned this this morning because this child that was to be born was bruising Satan's head. In the gates of his enemies. In the city of Ephesus, with so much sorcery and idolatry, there's Paul performing these wonderful miracles by the power of the Lord Jesus. 
Verse 13, since I commented on this this morning, I'll be brief. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, you ought to look up the word definition of vagabond. It's a person without a home or a profession. A gypsy. It's awesome. We've had him in this country. Then you don't hear about him much anymore, but I remember growing up as a boy, you'd hear about gypsies. And many times they were involved in some of the very same activities here, palm reading, crystal balls, and the rest of this stuff, because they're, they use sorcery to make the little bit of money they need to survive. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over. Let me, how are they throwing out devils? Jesus once had a little discussion about that with the Jews. He said, if I'm casting out devils by the finger of God, how are your children casting them out? Because they stood at such odds with each other, Jesus and the Jews. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, and here was their formula for exorcism, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. They watched Paul, and Paul was effective. Paul was very effective. And they watched and they copied. But there is no copying true religion like this. Not with a false heart. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Amen. Brethren, are there evil spirits? Amen. Who do they always know? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. You think someone's afflicted by demons and you want to invoke the proper formula? Invoke the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And pray for God to have mercy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to deliver them. That name is all-powerful. Right. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man, a single man, in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them, that is, seven sons of Sceva, and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Amen. He, went into, he went up against the gates of hell and went through them and took them and prevailed. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't duplicate the power of the Apostle Paul with God's blessing upon him. But notice that even in this event, the Lord Jesus was magnified. Amen. When you hear a spirit admitting that he knows the Lord Jesus, with respect, but then saying that he doesn't acknowledge these gypsy imposters, that creates fear, and it did. And many that believe, brethren, this is so exciting here, this is true religion. If you haven't done this in some way in your life, how do you find yourself matching up with the book of Acts? And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That is an enormous amount of money. 50,000 pieces of silver? I wouldn't kick at 50,000 silver dollars right now, even with the price of silver low. 50,000 pieces of silver. And what were these books? They were books about the curious arts. When someone is curious... That means they want to know something that they don't have a right to know. The arts, curious arts, arts, ways in which you try to find out things that you don't have a right to know, trying to foretell the future, sorcery, the curious arts, and they brought their books. Now, why didn't they sell their books and bring their money to the apostles' feet? Because that's selling the devil to other men. And I want to remind you of a little cross-reference. If you ever really... It's in the outlines, but it, I just want to throw it in. The Lord God said, never bring the, the price of a whore or the price of a dog into his house. And that's prostitution work by males and females. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So they burned them all. They didn't dare sell them. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Brethren, that is repentance. 
That is an exciting two verses, 18 and 19. They came, they confessed, and they showed. This is what I've been doing, and it's wrong, and I repent of it. And here's my books, and it's 50,000 pieces of silver. That is, that is godly religion. That is repentance. You have to sacrifice something. You have to burn something. You have to turn something off. You have to unplug it. You have to throw some VCR in the trash, maybe. Maybe you don't. Maybe I do. But we've got to sacrifice things. It's a life of self-denial. True Christians give up things for the Lord Jesus Christ. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now that's a lot of plans in one verse, wouldn't you say? He's in Ephesus, which is what we call Turkey. He wants to go to Greece, visit Macedonia and Achaia, which are two provinces of Greece. Then he wants to go to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome, all in one verse. But notice, he purposed in the Spirit. What does the Bible say in James chapter 4 and verse 15? For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. Because you're not going to do anything unless it's the Lord's will. And so the Apostle Paul, though he had all these plans in verse 21, he submitted them to the Spirit. Verse 22. Oh, I know someone's going to say, listen, let uh, let me chase 30 seconds. Why is the Spirit with a small s in verse 21 of Acts 19? When the King James Version was done in 1611, the rules of capitalization for deity were not established. And whenever there was a verse where there might be a question on the interpretation of the verse, the translators of our Bible would not capitalize to force the interpretation. They would leave it. I can show you other places where spirit is a small s. I can show you where the Son of God is a small s. And I can show you when Nebuchadnezzar saw an angel, he saw the Son of God with a capital S. I can show you the Word of God with a capital W, and I can show you the Word of God with a small w when it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way our Bible is translated. That means that someone who doesn't want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can find excuses not to do so. I love the way it's written. It leaves it up to us to study and to trust Him to reveal by His Spirit whether this Spirit is the Spirit. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. That's Ephesus. That was a major city in Asia Minor. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. I love that verse, brethren. No small stir. What he's talking about is a major riot in the city of Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit calls it no small stir. And it's about that way. What's that way? That's God's way. That's our way. Amen. About that way. They couldn't handle having that way in their city. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, This Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Aren't those precious words? Those are very pompous words about Diana. The rest of the world would have objected a little bit to saying that the whole world worshipped Diana of the Ephesians. Let me point out a couple things about Demetrius. First of all, most religious opposition to the truth, much of it, results from financial fear. And it's interesting that this would come up tonight, wouldn't it? Financial fear. Men face a situation in their ministries. Most ministers in the pulpit today have never worked in their lives. They do not know whether they can make money or not because they never had a job where they had to make money to support themselves. They go to seminary straight out of high school. They get out of seminary and they're given a church. They've never had a job to make money. They are dependent upon a denominational structure for their support. So that when they study and they see something 
in the Word of God. And they know that to preach that, they're going to lose their position and their place in that particular denomination. It is a horrible temptation for them. It is a horrible temptation to compromise the truth, to keep your position. The Bible speaks much about it in John chapter 12. Those Pharisees were afraid to confess them, even though they believed on Jesus Christ because it would be cast out of the synagogue and the temple. And I feel for the, I fear for those men, and I feel for those men because they were... And here's why. Even though that is horrible that they would compromise truth in order just to keep their position and their check coming in, but the reason is this. They got in the ministry the wrong way in the first place. They shouldn't have left high school and chosen it as a career. It's not something that you sit down and take a catalog from a local university and thumb through it and say, I think I want to major in religion and be a minister. It's not a career choice. God give us men that don't want it. Like the Apostle Paul, Moses, and Jeremiah. They made pretty good ministers once they were in the office, but they sure didn't seek it. Another thing. Ministers had better be able to support themselves outside the ministry. Because when a minister can support himself outside the ministry, he isn't afraid of losing the support that's in the ministry. It's beautiful. It's precious. Do you know what Jesus said? If a man, if a man has not been faithful in that which is least, right. the, the filthy lucre of this world, the mammon system of this world, then he doesn't deserve to have the true riches committed to his trust. Because when there isn't that fear, then a man can preach whatever he is convicted to preach without fear. And in one or two sentences, I want to boast. I made plenty before I entered the ministry in 1984. I had a great job at Michigan National Bank. I was the youngest vice president of 7,500 employees in that bank. I made more than twice per year when I left the ministry in 1981 over the last seven years running that little restaurant. That should be visible and obvious to anyone who ever wants to think about it. That's all I'll say on it. That was planned before I heard tonight. That's planned because it's right here, because in studying Acts chapter 19, I saw that Demetrius was arguing for financial reasons rather than trying to oppose Paul with sound reasoning and logical discussion and argumentation. He simply appealed to the fact we're going to lose money. We don't want that to happen. And if anything were to happen again, I can support myself and my family again. And that is a great liberty. That is a blessed liberty. And I just want to let it all... I just want to let what... The Lord convicts me to preach, to let it all hang out, and for all of us to seek the Lord with our whole heart. Amen. And no fear of man. Right. Amen. And, and I, though, though I am criticizing by describing the average minister, I'm telling you the truth, brethren. It's a career choice for them. And they get into a situation when they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old where they might see something with their Bible study finally. They might see something and they can't make a choice because they're afraid of losing their position and their support. And some of us know either firsthand or secondhand men who have been able to express that, that they wouldn't know what to do. Do you know there's a verse in the Bible that says, I cannot dig and I will not beg. Paul hath persuaded, verse 26, the middle of it, Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. May I please just tell you that gospel preaching, Bible preaching, is not always positive. This is negative. This is not making people feel comfortable with their religion. This was turning men away from idolatry to worship and serve the true and the living God. Bible preaching is not always positive. It includes a great deal of negative. And they are admitting this about Paul's ministry in verse 26. Now all these craftsmen that had been brought together by Demetrius, verse 28, when they heard these things, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great! is Diana of the Ephesians. Of course, when you can't answer it with Bible, and when you can't answer it with reason, let's just all shout. Isn't ignorance bliss? What they say. Let's just be ignorant. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, and just keep repeating it. Now, how does that persuade anyone? How does that answer truth? God has blessed us with so much, we can open the Word of God and pull out a 66-inch blade that cuts both ways and hack and chop our way through such ridiculous religions. Listen to this. And the whole city was filled with confusion. 
And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. This was a smaller version of the Colosseum that was at Ephesus. Paul refers in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to fighting with beasts at Ephesus, which would have been done in this theater. This is not a Hollywood 20, folks. This is a theater. Okay, you all understand that. This is a theater like the Colosseum. And when Paul would have entered in under the people, the disciples suffered him not. Paul wanted to go into this mad mob and explain what was going on, and the disciples wouldn't let him go in. And certain of the chief of Asia, these are some important and influential men of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So he stays outside. Now here's what's going on inside. This is a great religious service. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another. For the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. The, the majority didn't even know why they had gone to church that day. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews putting him forward. This is no friend of the Apostle Paul. This is very likely, though the Bible does not tell us, this is very likely Alexander, the coppersmith that we read about Paul condemning and warning Timothy about when Timothy was at the city of Ephesus because there was a silversmith involved here and Alexander was a coppersmith. This Jew, this Jew was being put forward by all the Jews in the crowd in order to divert attention from the mob that included the Jews along with the Christians because they both preached against idols. The Jews were despised in cities like this also because they preached against idols. But they're trying to get Alexander the coppersmith up on, up on the stage or up in the center of the room, the, the, the theater, so that he can say, this isn't our fault, this is these Christians. It doesn't say the disciples are putting him forward, it says the Jews are putting him forward. He's no friend of Paul. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people defending him and the Jews. But when they knew that he was a Jew, because they lumped them all together, believing in one creator God, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You can turn on your, tele your religious station and get some services like this. A whole bunch of crying out without much truth and very little teaching from the Bible. Just a whole lot of noise and crying out. Can you, two hours long, just standing there repeating it. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's a whole city given over to idolatry, and the Lord blinded their hearts. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, brethren, we'd be yelling with the best of them. Yep. Do you all believe that? Amen. Let's always remember that. But that does not mean I'm going to feel sorry for them being so ridiculous. It means I'm going to be thankful for the grace of God. And when the t here's how the Lord works. He provides so much mercy again, just like he did in chapter 18. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Athens, ye men of Ephesus, excuse me, ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? <clears throat> Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, don't you see that the, 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 the logical reasoning that's been brought forth cannot be spoken against? Right. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with them have a matter against any man, the law is open and there are deputies, let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. A bunch of crazy men for two hours crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, instead of going out and getting Paul and stringing him up, the whole worship service just disbands. And they all go home by the providence of God in the city of Ephesus of Asia Minor. Brethren, we are Baptists. We are not really Anabaptists. We're Baptists. We baptize 
because a person comes to us that hasn't been baptized if they were sprinkled or they were dipped as a baby. I hope that you'll learn the Word of God. I've tried to go through this, this. We went through this chapter quickly, but I hope that you'll remember in particular the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19. If you have any questions about those verses, I'd be happy to answer them. I want you established in the fact that there is a proper way to baptize, and if it hasn't been done properly, if it hasn't been done scripturally, it needs to be done scripturally, no matter how conscientious or sincere a person might be. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word tonight. Amen.